Good morning, church. So good to be with you again and start another week together by opening the scriptures. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to 1 Timothy. If not, underneath the seats in front of you, you should be able to find a blue Bible. And 1 Timothy is in towards the end of the Bible. Uh, Parents, if you have kids up through fifth grade, if you'd like for them to stay with you, that's fine, of course. If you'd like for them to go to some age-specific teaching that's offered now, there's some workers out on the patio that can help you with that. As you're turning uh, to 1 Timothy, uh, just mention what Tad talked about, the prayer gathering tonight. Um, we, as your pastors, are, are under the conviction that we could grow in, in praying as a body. And so we just want to encourage you, if you're able, to come back tonight This will be our first prayer meeting of the fall, and we have uh, another one scheduled. So there's three member meetings this fall, and then on the off months when we don't have a members meeting, we've put a prayer meeting. And so Phil uh, is going to share with us from Revelation 8, so we'll have 15-minute devotional, and then we'll sing a song, and then the remaining hour or so. Um, we'll have a combination of sharing together about various things and then praying about those. So I think it will be a very meaningful time. We want it to be sort of a, a whole family experience, so there won't be any uh, childcare offered. And so bring uh, some coloring books or cough syrup or whatever it is you need for your kids, and then we'll have a great time uh, together. So I hope you can come, and if you need to leave early, feel free. But uh, we're, we're hoping this will become a staple in the life of the church. Uh, this morning, we're beginning our journey through the book known as uh, 1 Timothy. And the title can be a little confusing because unlike Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book is named after the person it was written to, not the person who wrote it. And so in this case, the Apostle Paul wrote these six chapters, to uh, a young person that he designated to be the temporary leader of this church in Ephesus. And so it's a letter written to Timothy, to the congregation of the church of Ephesus, and ultimately to all Christians and all churches. If you're uh, new to the scriptures or new to Church on Mill, our habit, the vast majority of the time, in terms of the message, the sermon on a Sunday morning, is to simply uh, start at the first verse in a book of the Bible and then thought by thought move our way all the way through that book. And so for the next several months, we'll be in this book called 1 Timothy. On that table in the back, there are some cards that say uh, authentic, the gospel-shaped church on the front. And on the back, you'll find the title and the date and the section of the book we'll be in each week. I'd encourage you, if you're not already sort of in a discipling relationship with somebody, to, with a roommate or a family member or another church member, get together during the week and read the passage that's coming up together. It would take you just a few minutes and have a little conversation about it. You'll get a lot more out of the sermon if you've already been thinking and praying about the passage we'll be in. We're calling this series Authentic because 1 Timothy is largely about... How do you stay true to the real thing as a Christian and as a church? And the real thing is that a church would be, and we as individuals would be shaped or formed by the gospel. And so we'll be thinking together about how we can focus on uh, staying real. Uh, In the first gathering, I made the mistake of saying we can be real. And those of you who know what that is, what it is to be real. Um, There was a lot of laughing. There was more in the first gathering because there's a lot more young people there. So I tried to avoid saying be real and then I said be real again. So if you wanna take one of those little be reals right now, go right ahead. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then that's fantastic, all the better, all right? Now, let's get into it. First. Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, 
my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is how letters started in the ancient world. This was, of course, First Timothy, not, uh, it didn't fall out of heaven in a leather-bound Bible. No, this was a letter written by a real person named Paul who was in very likely in prison when he wrote it. And he wrote it to a younger person in ministry. Essentially, functionally, Timothy was operating as the temporary pastor or the delegate to help lead the church in Ephesus. We'll talk about why that is in a few minutes. But notice in verse 2 that he calls him his true child, to Timothy, my true child. When Paul wrote that, he didn't mean his biological child. As far as we know, Paul didn't have any kids. And yet he calls Timothy his true child. What is he speaking of there then? Well, he meant to the one he was close enough to, spiritually speaking, that he could call him his child. Friend, if you're a bit older in the faith, and frankly, that's relative. If you're in your 20s, then there are people younger than you in the faith. But especially to those of you who are a bit further above that, take that however you wish, You have a tremendous opportunity to be a spiritual father or a spiritual mother. Much of the Christian life is best learned differently than what we're doing right now. Much of the Christian life is best learned by observation and one-on-one or one-on-a-group-of-people conversation and dialogue, because so much of it's caught rather than taught. And so much of being a spiritual father or being a spiritual mother is inviting a few people into your life where they can see you up close, where they can learn from the progress that God's given you over time. It's seeing how you deal with the pressures of life. It's observing how you talk to your spouse. It's hearing how you think about being a single longer than you thought you would be. It's describing how you reach the point of forgiving someone that really hurt you. It's letting somebody in on your devotional that they might learn what it means to read the Bible and pray. As a church family, part of our membership commitment to one another is to be about the work of one another's discipleship, of helping each other grow up in the Lord. And sure, part of the way we do that is by regularly being here on Sunday mornings. But there's so much that needs to happen outside of this room And a key way we can go about that is by those of us who are a bit more seasoned, intentionally looking for people who are younger but sincere and want to grow. I want to encourage you this morning, maybe you didn't come thinking about the fact that you might hear something and respond to it in some way in the upcoming week that you didn't expect. I want to encourage you to think about that phrase, my true child. Is there anybody that you're sort of nurturing along, maybe in the very early stages, that they might come to say of you, that's my, that's my spiritual dad. Or she helped me so much, she's like my second mom, my spiritual mom. In a church like Church on Mill, where God is giving us so many vibrant, sincere young people. I want to encourage you to pursue them. Start with one. Start with a one-hour conversation. 
and let the Lord develop that over time. There are many people who would do well to have a spiritual father and spiritual mother. Now, one of the particularly noteworthy thing from this introduction or this greeting in 1 Timothy is what it tells us about Jesus. It'd be so easy to just skip past that, but I want to ask you to let your eyes glance back over verses 1 and 2 for a moment. And notice that those verses say something about God, meaning God the Father, but notice they also, in the same breath, if you will, tell us some things about Jesus in parallel ways. In verse 1, Paul says he's not an apostle by his own will or choice, but by the command of God, the Father, and the command of Christ Jesus. Hmm. Jesus can give commands. And then notice in verse 2 that grace, mercy, and peace come from God the Father, and commands come from Christ Jesus the Lord. That Jesus can dispense grace, mercy, and peace like God the Father can. If you're not a Christian and you're, you're here this morning just sort of sniffing out Christianity, we're, we're so thankful that you're here. And we want to encourage you to see that in God's providence, you're here when we're starting the very first week in a new book, and you get to see something here of who Jesus is. You see, there's, there's all, all kinds of opinions about Jesus. But in this case, we're looking at one of the sources, one of the books in the scriptures that tell us something about him. Some people today might say that Jesus is a good moral teacher, and certainly he is. But notice that those two verses are saying, making a claim about him far beyond just his moral teaching. They're claiming that the authority and power and ability and responsibilities that God the Father has, Jesus has. To put that another way, God the Father is God. God Jesus is God. Very important. As you consider who Christ is, I want to encourage you to engage what the scriptures say, because that's where you'll find the most important information you could ever find, namely the truth of who this Christ is. Now let's read on together. Verse three, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that certain people, so that you may charge certain people not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law. They understand either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. As we move from the greeting into the body of the letter, we notice that unlike some other letters Paul wrote, there's no warm prayer here. Now this letter just goes straight into the meat of the matter, if you will, right into the occasion or the heart of why this letter was written. And in this case, it was not a happy reason. This church was beginning to wander from the truth. Those of you who uh, have a car that's older than the last few years, you know if you go on a trip and you're at the wheel and you're tired and awake but not really paying attention eventually you're gonna end up wandering a little bit, amen? 
and you're going to hear that da 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 And if you're really not paying attention, then you might even hear it again with these tires over here. And if so, you're in big trouble. If you have a newer car, then, and you got it with the safety features, then when you begin to get over that line, what's going to happen? Yep, you're going to get a little thing telling you, hey, dum-dum, pay attention. And if you've got a really nice car, then what's going to happen as you veer over that line? It's actually just going to bump you back over. Did you know, brothers and sisters, that we have that responsibility one to another with the the lives that we live and the truth claims that we begin to receive? Did you know we're to be one another's? Paul is telling Timothy that there are certain people from within the church who are starting to teach different doctrine. And he uses the word swerving. They're wandering off the path. And if they're not careful, they're going to end up spiritually in a ditch. And so, Paul chose to tell Timothy, you got to stay there and help straighten that out. If you're not familiar with the background here of where, where was Ephesus, it's in modern-day Turkey. The ruins are incredible. I'd encourage you perhaps sometime later today, look up uh, Ephesus and look through the pictures. You've likely seen them in movies. It's among the best-preserved large cities from the ancient world. And Paul had been there, he had spent years there, and now he had moved on and he'd left Timothy there to help this young church that had been wandering from the truth. The church needed help. They needed help getting back on track. Church, there is such a thing as truth versus error, as biblical versus unbiblical, as fact versus falsehood, as right doctrine versus wrong doctrine, or to use Paul's word for it, different doctrine. Sometimes we can think that spiritual thoughts and beliefs exist in the realm of opinion, just like If I were to go around the room and ask each person, what's your favorite food? I would get lots of different opinions, okay? So for example, how many of you think Italian food is the best food there is? That is what you'd want all the time. A few, not a lot, a few, all right? How many of you think uh, Mexican food is the best food all the time? All right? Great. So, Italian food and Mexican food do not taste anything alike. The flavors are extremely different. And yet, some of you are convinced Italian is the best, and others are convinced Mexican is the best. Guess what? In this case, you're both right, because this is simply a matter of personal preference. Or we could do the same thing related to music. Now, I won't do that because this is a far more serious matter. (laughs) But some of you would have really strong opinions about one genre being the best and others another. And you would both be right again because these are personal preferences. But friends, we can slip into thinking that spiritual ideas fall in the same realm, the realm in which there is no actual right or wrong, truth or false, it's just what your palate enjoys. Timothy 
is to stay in the church and help them see there is a body, there, there is a, a set of right doctrines given by God. And anything else will lead you into a ditch. We need to be reminded that that is something that exists. Church, that there are ideas about God, heaven, hell, sin, Jesus, salvation, that are not matters of preference, but rather revealed, objective truth. That there is that on the one hand, and there are counterfeit claims about those things on the other. And the job of a pastor is to herald the truth, and the job of the members is to help the members remain in the truth. Imagine you have a family member diagnosed with a a very significant form of thyroid cancer. And one thing unusual about thyroid cancer is usually if there's a significant enough tumor, you can see it. Most kinds of cancer you get, they're not visible. But in this case, you can see it. And so he's been to several doctors and this family member has learned The doctors all, first opinion, second opinion, third opinion, say, it's not in your lymph nodes, and so we can get it out. You can have the surgery, and then, as far as we know, you'll live a normal life. But this guy continues to want to explore his options, and so where do you do that today? You do that on YouTube. And so... He gets on YouTube and he's searching thyroid cancer and eventually spending a lot of time, he finds a group with a a fairly decent sized following. And he begins to listen to their videos. He thinks at first they're kind of weird because the main proponent of this group says, you don't need surgery. That actually, if you'll commit for two, three, at the most four months, to eating a fourth a cup of gravel every night, then the gravel will, the toxins will absorb the cancer and the tumor will go away. You don't need surgery. And he's found through Facebook that there's actually many people with testimony that that's worked. And so he's been dialoguing with them and even learning how to do this. And he decides to take that option. I'm not gonna go the surgery route, I'm gonna go the chewing gravel route. And so you as a family member are, you think this is a little bit insane, but you just broached the first conversation as, uh, I wanna wanna express a little concern. Can, Can I give you another viewpoint? Would that be okay? but he proceeds anyway. And so every evening there's a special bag, 19.95 per bag, scoops the first, fourth, and crunches away. The next night the same, the third night the same. And as days turn into a couple of weeks, you're, you're now getting really concerned. And then as you move into month number two, you can visibly see that tumor is getting bigger, not smaller. And so you have follow-up conversation and then a third conversation in which you really, really express your thoughts about this method. And yet he continues with his gravel eating. And in fact, as more family members talk to this guy, He's beginning to push them away. He's choosing a a gravel family over his real family because they all believe the same thing. While aiming to convince others of this cancer-curing method, you can look at him and see it isn't working. The, The fruit 
of this truth claim isn't showing itself to be truthful. You can objectively notice it. Now, to those of you who are young or who just are unusually healthy, you probably think of medicine as something that is uh, objective, scientific, and it's just plug and play, everything gets right all the time. But those of us who, uh, we got a lesser model. We understand that that's not at all the way medicine actually works. Medicine, there's a reason doctors say, would you like to come to my practice? Because they're just practicing. (laughs) Still trying to figure out how does this thing work? So you can get a doctor even that might say something that just seems absolutely nuts, like chewing gravel as a method to cure cancer. You really love this family member. You plead with him to come away from this different doctrine. But he only pushes you away. Paul's concern in 1 Timothy is to show that there is true doctrine that is visible in its fruit. And there is different doctrine whose fruit is putrid. And he wants to invite us to invite each other to kindly but firmly reject that different doctrine and to stick with the real thing. What exactly was this different doctrine? Well, apparently Timothy already knew it, which makes sense because they had both been there at the same time. And so, unlike letters such as Galatians or Romans, where we can ascertain almost exactly, word for word, what the false teaching would have been, what the different doctrine they were hearing was, 1 Timothy doesn't give us that. It doesn't give us a full-orbed list that we can put back together. Here's exactly what was being taught. Instead, we get more like breadcrumbs. And frankly, the breadcrumbs are so small that even if you collect them all together, you can't figure out what, what was that slice of bread. What kind of bread was it? You can't really tell. And so what we get in Timothy is a few hints, a few breadcrumbs, and I'll show you what those are. But more we get well, here's the fruit. Here's the character of the lives of the false teachers. And he gives us that, that we might see how to analyze truth from error, not only by looking at the scriptures, but by looking at people's lives. So what was this different doctrine, though? Notice verse 4 mentions something about myths and genealogies. And then the last half of verse 4, which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. That is, rather than focusing on God's plan to rescue his people through Christ, this false doctrine concocted speculations from Old Testament obscure text that they were piecing together in some way, shape, or form. And so it's, it's, it's a myth. It involves genealogies. And verse 7 says that it involved a, a misuse of the law. Now, this, of course, isn't like the civil law as we would think of it today, but the Old Testament law, especially the moral law, the, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments. If you've not ever read the Old Testament, you've still probably at least heard of the concept of the Ten Commandments. Many of us here know those because we've just traveled through the book of Exodus where they were given in Exodus 20. 
So what he's telling us is they're, they're taking these myths and they're connecting them with genealogies and that's causing them to misuse the law. And that's it. That's all we know about the content of this false teaching. It doesn't seem like it was a coherent, put together, inwardly consistent set of doctrines themselves. It's more like this fuzzy, gray, you can't quite pin it down sort of thing. That is exactly the kind of false teaching or different doctrine that's thriving so well in our world today. Yes, there are some cults that have specific set of doctrines, but what's reaching, if you will, far more people is something that you couldn't sort of put its tenants into a bucket and then carry it around and hand it to each other so that we can look in there and understand it. It doesn't work like that. It's more like the bucket is full of holes and these concepts are getting poured in, but they're, it's poor, they're just flowing right out. You can't even get your arms around it to understand it. And these truth claims are inconsistent in themselves. This is the world that we live in, a world full of myths and speculations. Speculations that you can see in the fruit that they cause, which is putrid. I don't think COVID caused that. I think it exposed it. Most of us have friends or family members who have fallen prey in the last couple of years to some really, really crazy ideas that are unfounded, unproven, and except for some Facebook group and some YouTuber, no one would think that that claim has any validity at all. And yet, overnight, they seem to have thousands of followers. Friends, that kind of thing happens not because people are persuaded by some particular truth claim, but because something moral is going on in them that makes them susceptible to it. While we don't know much about the content of the false teaching in 1 Timothy, we do know its fruit. We do know what it causes. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, the aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love that comes from, that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, if you've tuned me out, would you dial back in for a minute? Give me two or three minutes, and then you can tune back out, okay? This is among the most important things I want to say. The charge Paul gave Timothy, stay and teach doctrine, the true stuff, the good stuff, the stuff that results in love. And then church, church at Ephesus, stay put, look around at each other. Help each other stay on the path of the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a path that is visible in its result, its result is love. And so, friend, ultimately, how do you know the truth, you're, the, the truth claims you're being taught are true, you know, as you look at the scriptures, because that's the source of truth. But another place you can look is you can look at the lives of people and what they look like, not their appearance, but their morality. Are they becoming more and more loving as a result of following what they're hearing as a claim to truth? Friend, how do you know if you're more deeply believing the scriptures? Well, you can measure your life with the measuring tape of love. Am I becoming more filled with good thoughts about God and more quickly 
finding myself going to prayer? Am I finding that people in the church who aren't like me, that I'm becoming more quick to go toward them? Am I finding that it's easier to spend time investing in somebody rather than doing it simply because it's duty? Am I finding I'm holding my possessions a little bit looser and sharing them with brothers and sisters in need? That this is biblical love. Am I finding that I'm actually thinking about having a hard conversation with somebody I'm concerned about how they're doing rather than just ignoring it? This is, this is love. This is biblical love love. And where does that come from? It's the fruit, not the root. It's not a trick question, I promise. We just read it. It comes from three things, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. From the the root of those three things comes the fruit, the fruit of love. And so what God is telling us here in these verses is that the goal of growing in doctrinal knowledge is love. And we're going to grow in love if the Lord has given us a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And we're humbly asking him to maintain those in our lives. By the miracle of God's grace to us in the gospel, we have hearts that have been cleaned, brothers and sisters. We have consciences that are being recalibrated, and we have a faith that's genuine. These are gifts from God, and they're to be things that we ask God to please maintain in our lives. When those traits are present, the result will be love. But when those traits are not present, what happens? Well, that's what verse six is about. Certain persons by swerving from these, what's these? Those three things. By swerving, now please hear this clearly. By swerving from a good conscience, a sincere faith, and a pure heart, By swerving from those, you go away from love and you fall into false teaching. This works exactly the opposite way that we tend to think it does. We tend to think somebody was walking with the Lord in all sincerity and everything was right internally. And then they just happened to fall prey to some bad doctrine and somebody convinced them and twisted their arm about things that aren't true about God. And then they begin following that, and they passed the in the road, and didn't pay attention, and ended up in a ditch, and then had problems in their behavior. Paul's saying it doesn't work that way. It's the exact opposite. There is in someone, or in a whole church, a wandering away from having clean hearts and good, sensitive consciences and a sincerity in our faith. And wandering from those results in a decrease of love. And then there's a gap, and in that gap, different doctrine comes. Friends, do you see how susceptible you and I are to that? There is different doctrine everywhere. But the reason it's being successful is not because it's so good at persuading people to walk away morally. because we're walking away morally, that we then become susceptible to it. 
God in his providence would want us to see that there is a moral component to different doctrine. It has as its aim continuing that path of swerving from the truth. Maybe a practical example would help. There's a lot of talk today about deconstructing your faith. The younger you are, the more familiar you are with that concept. It seems that we're told it's wise and coming of age if you're going through or have gone through a process of deconstruction and that everybody has to do it and it's so critical and important and the end result is gonna be a more sincere Christianity. But friend, I'd wanna tell you to be very, very cautious of those who are preaching deconstruction because their motives are not without blemish. They're operating from a worldview that says authority is bad and authority is oppressive and authority is ruining your life. And so therefore, to to get free and to be healthy and whole, then you gotta walk away from whatever your parents taught you. You gotta walk away from any truth claims that are uncomfortable. And you, you gotta find a church where, where you're, you're never uncomfortable or pressed into something that Christianity might claim that's rather demanding, that takes a posture of authority. That's different doctrine. Do you see that? It's not coming from pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. False teaching is moral. It's not merely intellectual disagreement about particular ideas. People all around us believe in different kinds of myths and speculations. And as I'm pointing that out, do you feel the the tension in the room increasing? It's because we're all susceptible to this. No one is too smart to end up believing some really dumb ideas. Why? Because falling to different doctrine is moral, not intellectual. The issue is our pure heart, good conscience. Sincere faith. Do you want to help build a protective bubble, if you will, around you, your family, your church family? A protective bubble, not a bubble that we hide in and don't go out in the world. I'm not talking about that at all, but a protective shield in which we're not falling to different doctrines. Well, you don't get there by watching lots of angry apologetics. You get there by pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. Those things are what the Lord uses to produce love as we hear the Bible taught. Praise God that there is real Christianity. There's a body of truth once for all delivered to the saints that we are tasked by God's grace to help each other stay in, that we are each other's beep, 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 and directing each other back on the path of truth. Now, as we're having this conversation over the next several months in Timothy, because this is largely what Timothy is about, One of the things I think is important for us to say right out of the gate is there is doctrine and there are things that matter, but they're not doctrine. They are more preference, like Italian food or Mexican food. And sometimes, especially churches that take doctrine seriously, they can blend the two and make like a smoothie and it's not a good smoothie. 
because some things need to stay in the realm of preference, not doctrine. Let me give you an example. We hear on Sunday mornings, when we sing songs together, we do not turn out the lights. About every six months, someone will ask me to do that. And I will think inside over my dead body. But I don't actually say that to them because I've done this long enough to know that that makes things worse. Why don't we turn down the lights? Well, I don't have a doctrine about that. I do have a very strong preference that's based on a doctrine. But I gotta understand the two are not the same thing. The New Testament tells us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to each other. So if you're in a pitch dark room, and usually in a pitch dark room, the music is really loud, and you might as well just be at home. You're not even thinking about the people around you. Why are the lights down? Well, because you being told doctrine, worship is about you and God. When actually the New Testament says corporate singing is about singing to God and each other. And so we leave the lights up because we actually think it's good that you have that awkward locking of eyes with someone else singing and there's no alcohol involved. <laughs> right? Because if you get deep in the life of the church, then you're going to know so-and-so is having a really, really rough time in life right now. And when you stand and look at her singing, declaring the goodness of God, while practically life is sort of in shambles, you will get a tremendous gift that can fuel your obedience all week. That's why we leave the lights on. But that's not a doctrine. And so if you were to leave and go join a church and they turn the lights off, that's not heresy. I don't think it's best, but we shouldn't treat each other as that's doctrine. Do you understand? The very important issue. Now, I was supposed to preach verses 8 through 11, but we're out of time. And so let me encourage you to read them later today or sometime this week. Have some conversation about it. And let me give you just 90 seconds of why they're there. Verses 8 through 11 are about the law. We said that certain persons swerving from the truth and they want to be teachers of the law. So Paul says, Listen, there's folks teaching you the wrong things and using the law in the wrong way. Let me tell you how to do it correctly. The moral law of the Old Testament, the heart of it, the Ten Commandments, are on Paul's mind. Now, how do we know that? Well, friend, if you take Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, and then you take these 11 and compare them, you'll see that in many cases, not only are they similar, but they're in the same order. They're an expansion of the Ten Commandments. And Paul's doing that to say, hey, listen, these people are telling you wrong things about how you use those Ten Commandments. I want to tell you what they're for. They're for telling one of their main purposes is to tell people who aren't Christians just how much they need God because they've broken those. And he shows it in a really brilliant way by saying things like, one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not commit adultery. You, when, you, when we hear the word adultery, what do we think of? We, we think of husband and wife and uh, husband has fallen away with another woman. But that 10th commandment, that 10th commandment, uh, it's not the 10th, that commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, it, it was a kernel 
that refers to any kind of illicit sexual sin. Well, how do we know that? Well, because here Paul expands it to include multiple kinds of sexual sin. And he's saying, look, Christian, I'm not trying to tell you anything other than this. Remember what the law is for. Its first use is to convict the sinner of their need for God's grace. That's what the law's for. That's why they're there. So I'd encourage you to look through them sometime and have some conversation, I hope, be edified by them. The list is not random. The last verse tells us this phrase, the glory, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The law leads us to see we've broken the law that we might find the grace of God. You don't go looking for something you don't know you need. If I would sum up this message, I would put it this way. For the sake of love, love, churches must guard the gospel by correcting false teaching. Not the false teaching out there, the false teaching in here. Because each one of us is gonna be tempted to wander from pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith, and when we do, we'll start talking nonsense, different doctrine, speculating about things. And the Lord wants us to help each other come back because he wants us to be loving. Loving him, loving each other, loving the world. Will you stand with me and let's pray. God, we pray you'd use this feeble attempt to promote love in our lives, that we would have pure hearts, good consciences, sincere faith. Pray for anybody here who doesn't know you, that you'd be drawing them to you with the truth about Jesus, the grace giver, the wrath taker, the Lord. And I pray that you would help us who do know you to be walking with you faithfully living moral lives that we might not wander or swerve into myths and endless false teaching. Would you help us love each other enough to buttress each other in the truth? And as we sing one last song to sort of cement these things in our minds and hearts, we pray even now for an experience of being reminded of who you are as we sing to you and to each other. In Jesus' name.